Let's pray. Father, help us to know you and cause us to know you as you have revealed yourself. Lord, keep us from being those who worship some other God because we have thought wrongly, mistakenly, unbiblically about who you are. And Father, we pray that as you cause us to know you, you would enable us to worship you. And we pray that these things would redefine how we think of ourselves, what we understand our purpose in life to be. And we pray, Lord, that everything that we do, everything that we say, would be shaped by the knowledge of you, our Father, and Christ, our Savior, and the power of the Spirit, our Comforter. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you and pray for your help now. In Christ's name, amen. Hopefully, you received this handout as you came in. If you did not, there's some guys uh, distributing them. You'll want to uh, uh, maybe stick your hand up if you did not get a copy. I think, I don't know how, yeah, most people did not get a copy. So, it's coming your way. Um, as we begin this morning, I would ask you to turn to John 14. But as you turn to John 14... I, I want to put a thought in your minds from First, first Peter chapter 2, verse 6. So maybe you, if you want to write down, maybe on this piece of paper that's coming your way, First Peter 2, 6, this image that Peter uses in First Peter 2, 6, I hope is going to give you a framework for thinking about the sermon that you're about to hear. So First Peter 2, verse 6 says this, Peter writes... You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Okay, so uh, what Peter is saying is that the members of the church, believers in Jesus, are being built up into a spiritual house, and that spiritual house is a holy temple. Okay, now not only are believers the temple... He goes on to say believers are also the priests who minister in the temple. So as we continue to, to read in 1 Peter 2, 6, Peter says, you yourselves, are like living stone, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That means that you as an individual believer are part of the building that is the temple, and you are one of the priests ministering in the building. And, and this, this, this sort of twofold image that you're the house, you're the temple, and you're the priest gives the reason that we need to understand what I'm going to preach on this morning. What, what, what we're going to, I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning in that we're not just going to sink into one text and stay in that text and exposit it. We're going to think together about what the Gospel of John shows us about the Trinity, about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons who are the one God. And the fact that we're the house and the priests, the temple and the priests, this is why we need to understand this. Because the temple is constructed as the dwelling place of God. So that your role in the world 
as a temple of the Holy Spirit is to be the place where God is present. To be the place where God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's saving love is administered. That's what the temple was about under Old Covenant Israel. People went to the temple because that's where God was. That's where he was present among his people. And they went to the temple to offer their sacrifices, to be forgiven of their sins. This is what it's about to be the temple. You, you are the place where God dwells on earth, and you're also a priest in the temple. What do priests do? Priests minister the knowledge of God to other people. Priests stand between God and other people. So your role in the world is to be indwelt by the triune God and then to minister the knowledge of the triune God to other people. And if we don't know God as Trinity, we don't know God. If you don't worship God as Trinity, you don't worship the God of the Bible. If you don't know God as Trinity, you, you're not indwelt by the God of the Bible, and you can't minister the knowledge of the God of the Bible to others. So what we're thinking about today is vital to us <clears throat> as Christians. We must know the God that we worship. We must know him as he is revealed in the scriptures. So I want to think with you about how it is that Peter can say that we are both the temple in a sense, living stones being built up as a spiritual house, and a holy priesthood. I think what Peter is saying is exactly what Jesus said in John 20 when he said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so have I sent you. Because Jesus came as the fulfillment of the temple. Just think of what he said in John 2, destroy this temple, talking about his body, and in three days I'll raise it. And and. And so Jesus came as the fulfillment of the temple, and Jesus also came as the fulfillment of the priesthood. And, and we've been seeing in, in Hebrews how he is our great high priest who stands between us and God and reconciles us to the Father and, and all the rest. So Jesus is both temple and priest. And you know, when we were in the book of Exodus, when we were in the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and then the instructions for the, the making of the high priest's garment, garments, we saw that the, the, the materials to be used for the making of the curtains of the tabernacle are the exact same materials to be used for the making of the high priest's garments. And then the way that the altar at the tabernacle was to be consecrated mirrored exactly the way that the priest was to be consecrated. They put blood on the horns of the altar, on the base of the altar, and then they splash it on the sides of the altar. They take blood from the sacrifice and they put it on the, the uh, priest's right ear and then his big toe of his right foot and then the thumb of his right hand. It's, it's, it exactly mirrors what happens with the altar so that the priest is almost like a walking depiction of the tabernacle. There's this close relationship between the high priest and the tabernacle. And Christ comes in fulfillment of that and then he sends us as he was sent. And so what we're looking at this morning is about what it is to be a Christian in the world. It's, it's about uh, being inhabited by the triune God and then ministering the knowledge of the triune God in the world. So the way that we're going to come at this, I've given you this uh, handout, this front and back. And on one side it says part one of the Athanasian Creed. And then on the other side, you have the Trinity in, God's, in, in John's gospel. And we're going to walk through 
the corresponding sections of the chiastic structure of part one of the Creed of Athanasius. So that's on the back side. And so the first headings, it says necessary belief at top and bottom, the first and last headings. And that matches the text in red on, on the other side of the handout. And then I've given you some scriptures under the heading necessary belief. So we're just going to walk... We're going to start on the outer rings of this chiastic structure and work our way down to its center, okay? Beginning with necessary belief. So look with me, if you will, at the text in red. And I just want to read to you the first and last statements of part one of the Athanasian Creed. It says, Whoever desires to be saved must above all hold to the true Christian faith. Anyone who doesn't keep it, does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. So that's just saying, if you don't know God, you will perish. And, and then it's, when it says above all, what it's saying is this knowledge of God, the, triune revel, the, the revelation of the triune God is of first importance to us. And then the last words at the bottom of the page, it says, any therefore that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. So we're going to start with this idea of necessary belief. And I would invite you to look with me at John 14, beginning in verse 15, where John writes, the Lord Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, this morning I read this tragic story about this, um, it's, a, it's, it's in this weekend's, weekend, this weekend's edition of the Wall Street Journal, this uh, father from Somaliland, a little country within Somalia, became so frustrated with his son that he would not obey him that he took him back to Somaliland because in Somaliland, a father can have his son imprisoned for disobedience. So they moved back to Somaliland, and then his father had his, the father had the son imprisoned. That didn't work. As soon as, the, as soon as they let the son out of prison on promise of obedience, the son runs away. And, and then, you know, it, it's just a sad tale of um, opioid addiction and theft, and now criminal charges back here in the United States. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if there is no love that comes from God, if there is no love that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, if there is no love that comes from the new birth, there will be no obedience. So Jesus says, if you love me, and anyone that's been born again is going to love Jesus. If you're here this morning and you think, oh boy, I don't think I love Jesus. You need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. You are in a desperate condition. You cannot obey. And you will not obey until you are born again. But if you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. And, and he can say that because, because uh, he's building you like living stones into a spiritual house. And he's going to inhabit that temple. And his presence will not tolerate uncleanness. It will not tolerate disobedience. It will not tolerate sin. And that's why your conscience won't let you rest until you confess, until you get on your knees and, and you confess your sins to the Lord and you cry out for mercy and you plead the blood of Christ. He won't tolerate it. So if you're here this morning and you're trying to get him to tolerate it, you just need to quit. You need to stop trying that. You need to repent. That's your only hope. That's the only way that you will find rest, is to turn away from your sin and cry out for God's mercy. If you love me, he says, you will keep my commandments. 
verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. You could, you could render this, whom the world is not able to receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Those, those who don't know God cannot receive the Holy Spirit. They don't see him. They don't, they don't recognize his work. They don't know him. They do not experience him. And then at the, la- at the last part of that verse, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And you'll remember that earlier in the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit, back in John 1, 29 through 34, came down upon the Lord Jesus to remain upon him. And, and that's a, a really important word in the Gospel of John, this word that gets translated remain or abide. So it's as though Jesus has come in fulfillment of the temple and he's been filled by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit is now remaining upon him. And by virtue of them being with Jesus, they have been with the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus goes away, those passages that Matt read earlier, he is going to impart the disciples, uh, impart the Spirit to the disciples and then send them as he was sent with the result that they will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So these things, this is only going to work for us. This is only going to compute for us if we understand what the Bible reveals about our triune God, and if we embrace these things. If you reject these things, you just need to be clear, you're not a Christian. If you reject the knowledge of God as Trinity, you are not a Christian. You may be a deist or a Unitarian or or something, some kind of theist, but you are not a Christian. This is necessary to Christian faith. This is what distinguishes Christianity from Islam and other other kinds of other ways of approaching God. So this is necessary belief. Uh, Notice there that he says of the Spirit in verse 17, even the Spirit of truth. And, and, And this is one of the ways that we can see that the three are one because Jesus has just said in this chapter, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So these things can only be said. It can only be said that Jesus is the truth, And that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, if they are the same. That's the only way that can be said. And Jesus can only say, I am, dot, 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 the truth, if he is what the Father is. Who said of himself, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and truth. So the God of the Old Testament revealed himself as a God of truth. And then Jesus comes saying, I am the way, the truth. And then he says, and I'm going to send you the spirit of truth. So this is establishing this unity between the three. Um, what we're talking about here, the, these are things that if, you, if, you don't, if we don't have a way, and, and thankfully in this Athanasian Creed and in, the, in those who have gone before us, they've come up with a a coherent way. If you don't have a way to hold all this together, you cannot arrive at a satisfying explanation of the mysteries in the Old Testament. And this is why I I asked for those passages from Genesis 18 and 19 to be read. You can see in those passages that there are these three visitors that come, and then that Yahweh is speaking to Abraham. 
And, and then at, at one point in, in Genesis 19, 23, and 24, Yahweh, who has apparently been over there visiting with Abraham, and now he's made his way over to Sodom, that Yahweh, who is apparently standing on earth, calls down fire and brimstone from Yahweh out of heaven. So there's two Yahwehs in the verse, and we believe in one God. What is going on here? And, and all across the Old Testament, there, there are these strange things like this, that these mysteries that really need some kind of explanation, need some kind of coherent accounting given to them. And then what's revealed in the New Testament about Jesus coming as the incarnation of God and then sending the Spirit as God, uh, this, this is a satisfying reconciliation of uh, these mysteries in the Old Testament. It's a resolution to these things. Uh, that brings us to the worship of the triune God. There's more that we could say here, more that I probably should say, but our time is short. So the, the second subheading says worship, and on the, on the other side of your page, you've got in blue this line at the beginning and the end from the Athanasian Creed, and I want to read these words to you. It says that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. And I just want to pause here and, and offer a word of application. Not only do we need to know these things to be saved, there, there's a point of application. You need to know these things to be saved. The whole point of, these, of knowing these things is not just to be saved. It's like Israel. You know, the point of the Exodus is not just to save those people and get them out of, out of Egypt. The point is, as, as the Lord says repeatedly, that they may serve me. That's the point of the Exodus. They're, they're to be saved so that they can serve God. And the point of, of our salvation is that we might worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. So this whole sermon, I hope, I hope you'll feel this sermon is about worship. This is about knowing the God whose praise you sing, to whom you sing. And really, as we think about these realities, this is taking us to the farthest depths of eternity, what we're talking about here. And, and in the farthest depths of eternity, that's where the idea springs that there will be a world that needs to be saved, that the Son will be sent to accomplish salvation, and the Spirit will be given to apply that salvation. So, and, and then we're going to be singing the praises of this God for eternity future. So this is almost inconceivable to us that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. And then the second line reads, neither confounding the persons, and that just means not mixing them up with one another, nor dividing the substance, okay? So we have three persons, and there's one God. So we don't confound the persons, meaning we don't confuse the Father with the Son, or the Son with the Spirit, or vice versa. And we don't divide the substance in, in that we don't say, well, the Father, he's got this part of God, and the Son, he's got this part of God, and the Spirit's got this other part of God. No, it's one undivided substance. One God, three persons, and the three persons are not mixed up with one another. That's what that's saying. The, the, the corresponding line at the bottom, it summarizes the whole thing, and it says, so that in all things, as is aforesaid, indicating that you know, everything that has just been said in this creed is now being summarized, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. And that indicates, I think, that these, this twin idea of worshipping one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity 
and not confounding the persons or dividing the substance, that's the big idea that controls the whole creed. That's the big idea that's being exposited in the creed. So let's just think together about a couple of these things. Let's start, uh, just, a, just a note on worship. You remember in John 4 when Jesus was conversing with the Samaritan woman. Uh, she made some comment to Jesus, and, and Jesus responded to her. He says to her in John 4, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And then he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So we want to be true worshipers who are worshiping the Father in, in the power of the Holy Spirit and in a true understanding of who he is. And then look at what he goes on to say in, there in John 4, 23. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father, God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we want to know him that we might do exactly what uh, we read of there. Uh, related to this, look with me at, at John 12. And here I would remind you of some of the things that we saw last week when we were thinking about the way that Deuteronomy 6.4 says, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then we were thinking about Isaiah 42.18 and the Lord saying, 42.8, sorry, the Lord saying, uh, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. And I just want to walk through some statements that are made here. John 12, 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So Jesus is talking about himself being glorified as he's crucified. And then down in verse 28, he says, Father, glorify your name. Okay, the Son of Man is going to be glorified. And what Jesus prays for is, Father, glorify your name. How is the name of the Father going to be glorified when the Son of Man is glorified? And I think the answer is, well, the Son bears the Father's name. And, and this is what we see, for instance, at the end of the Gospel of, of John. Before I quote this text to you, uh, I just want to note the way that even in the reading that we heard today, the name that we might pronounce Yahweh is rendered Lord in the Old Testament. And the same thing is happening in the Greek translations of the Old Testament. And then those references to Yahweh as Lord are being brought into the New Testament. And they're often applied to the Lord Jesus. So that when Thomas is given indisputable evidence that Jesus is raised from the dead, you remember what he said? He said, my Lord and my God. I think that Thomas is saying, essentially, Yahweh and God. And, and he's addressing Jesus this way. And I would suggest to you that, that this is exactly what's going on here in John 12, 28, when the Father, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The Father is going to glorify his name, which the Son shares when the Son is glorified at the cross. And that's going to lead to worship. Look at, look at verse 32. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. People are drawn to worship Jesus 
because he has been revealed as God. And then the Spirit gets in on this. Look at chapter 16, verse 14. Matt read this a second ago. Jesus says of the Spirit, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And I just want to throw in here a a text or two from outside of John's gospel, because this idea of, of the Trinity in unity, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, it explains so much in the New Testament. Think of the words of Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One name, three persons. And then think of that text that you may well have memorized, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, where it says, now the Lord is the Spirit. And I think, we, I think Paul here is thinking of Yahweh is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, where the Spirit of Yahweh is, freedom. And that explains also, or that fits with Jesus saying things like, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So this is necessary belief that leads to worship. And what we're dealing with are distinct persons who are equal and eternal. And this is uh, on your part one of the Athanasian Creed. Uh, you have text that is, uh, it's, it's sort of gray, not quite black, but gray. And I just want to draw your attention to the way that it, at the end of, of uh, the top section, it says the glory equal the majesty co-eternal. And then in the corresponding section at the end, it says the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal. And I would invite you to think about the way that, that John's gospel forces you to conclusions like this, conclusions that are articulated here by saying things like this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then there's also this that I would like to draw your attention to in John 10 and put it in context with something that we thought about last week with reference to the Lord Jesus. So if you will, look with me at John 10, and I want to start reading. Jesus is talking about his sheep, and I want to start reading in verse 27. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And, and uh, we should all be encouraged by this because it means that the people that belong to Jesus are going to hear the words of Jesus as we speak to them. If, if we've got a controversial thing to say to them, if we've got something scriptural to say to them, we can be confident if this person belongs to Jesus, they're going to hear. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And listen to what he says. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Next words. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Which I think implies Jesus with the Father is greater than all. Because nobody's going to snatch anybody out of Jesus' hand. And then you'll remember that last week we read John 14, 28, where Jesus says in John 14, 28, the Father is greater than I. And, and, and so the, the gospel of John is putting this pressure on us. And, and 
you can say, okay, either he's just manifestly contradicting himself and not realizing it, or you can grant him the, the coherence of mind to say, there's some way that he's put it, holding this together. And what he's doing is he's forcing me to come to a way to hold together Jesus saying, I and the Father is, are one, having just said, uh, the Father is greater than all, and then also for him to say, the Father is greater than I. And what we saw last week is that part, part two of the Athanasian Creed says he's equal with the Father as to his Godhead, but inferior as to his manhood. But here, we're, we're, we're looking at this profound equality between the persons, even as they are distinguished from one another. And this should provoke us to worship because there is no one like our God. There is no one like him. And, and if, if what the Bible reveals about him is beyond our ability to comprehend, we should celebrate him all the more. The, the next uh, bullet point here is undivided substance with eternal relations of origin. And um, here, what we're dealing with is the way that, as I noted, Jesus is the, is the truth, the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, and um, so they are manifestly the same, undivided in their deity, and yet their, their origin is described in, in different ways. As, as uh, the purple the text near the bottom says, the Father is made of none. You go through the Gospel of John, there is never any word spoken of where God the Father came from. So the Father is neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made. The Son is not part of the creation. Nor, nor created, but begotten. And uh, at several points in John's Gospel, Jesus is described as the only begotten of the Father. And uh, he speaks of the Father granting him to have life in himself. We talked about these things some last week. And then it goes on to say, The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. And I would draw your attention to John 15, verse 26, where we read, Jesus says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. That's where they're, they're, they're getting this language of, of the Spirit uh, proceeding from the Father. And um, um, I read a, a quote this week from an early church father who said something to the effect of, if you ask me what proceeding is, I will also offer you an ex a biological explanation of how it was that the Son was begotten and how it was that the Father was there always, and we'll both go mad together. And then he said, who is competent for these things? Who is competent for these things? These are, these are truths that are beyond us, but they are taught in the Scriptures. They involve knowing God. Uh, finally, we're dealing with three persons who are one God. And, and this is a key phrase that I would encourage you to lock onto and keep in mind. Three persons, one nature, one God. If you bear that phrase in mind, you keep that phrase in mind, you, you won't hopefully, speak like a heretic. And we, we don't want to be heretics. Um, 
this, this is an attempt to summarize the two middle sections of the Athanasian Creed, and, and I just want to get at some of the things that are said here. All three members of the Godhead are described in this middle section as being uncreated, incomprehensible, and eternal in the first section, and then as being almighty and God and Lord in the second section. We've talked some about them being uncreated. The Father is of none, the Son is begotten of the Father, the Spirit proceeds. On this matter of them being incomprehensible, the idea that, that, is, uh, that is aimed at here is what we see in John 1.5, when, Jesus, when, when John writes of Jesus, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That, that's what we're dealing with. A God who is like light that darkness cannot squelch, darkness cannot constrain, God. And then when it speaks of them being eternal, you can find statements of Father, Son, and Spirit present before the world is made, and then promising to be with people forever. So the, the eternality extends in both direction, both directions. Uh, when we come to that second set of affirmations, Almighty, God, and Lord, let me draw your attention to the way that the, the creed says, and yet they are not three almighties. And I want to read to you a, a quotation from uh, Basil of Caesarea, and he's interpreting the Gospel of John. He's interpreting John 5.19, which we looked at together on Christmas Day. Basil wrote this, The work of the Father is not separate or distinct from the work of the Son. Whatever the Son, quote, sees the Father doing, that the Son does likewise, John 5.19. And then Basil writes, He shines forth from the Father and accomplishes everything according to his parents' plan. He is not different in essence, nor is he different in power from his, from his Father. If their power is equal, then their works are the same. What he's saying is that when the Son acts, he acts with the one power of God, which makes it so that what the Son does, the Father and the Spirit are also involved in. And this leads to this phrase, inseparable operations of the members of the Godhead. Everything that they do, they do together. And they do all this together because they are, they are one God. And as one God, they share omniscience. They know everything. And they share omnibenevolence. They know what's right. They desire the same thing. And so knowing the shared everything, desiring shared everything, this is also going to result in a united desire leading us to affirm that there is a single divine will exercised by the three persons of the Godhead. And again, I want to quote Basil of Caesarea commenting on a string of texts in John's gospel. He writes, when he says, Jesus, I have not spoken on my own authority, John 12, 49, and as the Father has said unto me, so I speak, John 12, 50, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me, 1424. And I do as the Father has commanded me, 1431. He does not use language of this kind because he is incapable of his own choice or is lawless 
or has to wait for a prearranged signal. He wants to make it clear that his will is indissolubly united to the Father. We must not think that what he calls a commandment is an imperious order delivered by word of mouth by which the Father gives orders to his Son, as he would to a subordinate, telling him what he should do. Instead, let us think in terms worthy of the Godhead and realize that there is a transmission of will like the reflection of an object in a mirror which reaches from father to son without passage of time. The father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, John 5.20. Everything the father has also belongs to the son. He does not acquire it little by little, but has it all at once. So these things are a mystery, and yet they are revealed in Scripture And the the affirmations in the creed, they give us boundaries within which we can think about these things. And so I would encourage you to to embrace these truths so that you can know God. If If there's one overriding application of this sermon, that's it. Know God so that you can worship him as triune. Know God to worship God. And abide in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. He sent us as as temples, as he was sent. We want to be like the people described in Psalm 84.4. The psalmist says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. That's, That's how we want to respond to the knowledge of God as triune. We want to dwell in the spiritual house that we're living stones being built up into and as, as a spiritual priesthood, offer these sacrifices of praise to the Lord. John 1.12 says, To all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. You can receive the Lord Jesus you, you embrace what the Bible says about Jesus. You put your hope and faith and trust in Jesus. And you will not only receive him, you will receive the indwelling spirit. And Jesus says in John 14, verse 23, he makes this amazing statement. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him which indicates that by means of the indwelling spirit, we are indwelt by the triune God. So you can have Christ abide in you by the spirit. And this comes, as Jesus says in John 8 and in John 15, by abiding in his word. So as our minds relish the scriptures, and as we think these thoughts of God, the Lord mediates his presence to us, through his word. Let's pray together. Father, we are not adequate for these things. We don't have the intellectual resources. We don't have the categories. We are creatures. We are small and confined by our limitations. But Lord, you have revealed 
enough of yourself for us to know you truly. And we pray that you would help us to know you. We pray that you would keep us from error. We pray that you would teach us by the Spirit, as Jesus said you would, the truth concerning yourself. So Lord, we, we pray that you would continue this work of building us like living stones into a spiritual house to make us a holy priesthood, offering praise to you. We pray that you'd be glorified, that you would transform everything about us, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.